Friends, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We continue our Foundations of Faith series, a series that is being guided by that classic uh, creed of the church, the Apostles' Creed. It was actually a a baptismal creed, and uh, we are on the second uh, credo, or I believe of that creed. Uh, I believe that Christ, as the Son of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. My sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 a passage of Scripture that is often labeled the Annunciation as the angel Gabriel announces the promised birth of Jesus uh, to the Virgin Mary. So let us hear God's holy word, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from from her. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, powerful passage of the Holy Scriptures. We ask that by your Spirit you would help us to understand that which the Spirit is speaking to us in this portion of your Word. We pray that our hearts might be encouraged, that our spirits might be lifted up, that we might be edified in our faith, that we might be challenged to more and more put away our sin and follow after Christ. Bless the proclamation of your word this morning. Set a guard over my lips, Lord God, that I might speak only that which is faithful to your word and cause your word to bear much spiritual fruit in our lives. We pray these things through Christ our Lord and all of God's people said. Amen. Congregation, you may be seated. Well, dear ones, as, as you can tell, I'm, I'm on the tail end of a, a bit of a cold, so if my voice gets a little crackly or strained, uh, please pardon me for that. The title of my sermon this morning is Conceived by the Holy Spirit. And as you can see in your sermon outline, if you'd like to follow along with uh, key words, there's five key words to be listening for that I'd encourage you to uh, listen for in my sermon today. 
Well, dear ones, as we continue to review and to explore the implications of the foundations of our holy Christian faith, using the statements from the Apostles' Creed as a guide to our study, this Lord's Day morning we consider a vital Bible doctrine, a doctrine which over the last century or so has become the favorite target of, for Bible critics and skeptics, blasphemers and scoffers to shoot at with the arrows of their pointed criticisms and dripping mockery. Namely, the doctrine of the miraculous conception of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This biblical doctrine that we and all adherents of Christianity affirm in the second credo of the creed where we confess that Christ our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit is, again, that which we are uh, specifically considering on this Lord's Day morning. Skeptics raise doubts and objections about the historicity of our Lord's miraculous virginal conception and birth. Scoffers delight to ridicule and mock it as a silly Christian superstition. And even many who would identify themselves as professing Christians and especially those in many of the so-called mainline churches, either have doubts about this doctrine or they reinterpret it as an edifying myth or perhaps a metaphor that was invented by the early Christians in order to express how special they felt Jesus to be. But friends, in my sermon for this Lord's Day morning, based on this passage from the Gospel of Luke, which Again, as I pointed out, this passage which is often called the Annunciation, because in it the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she will be the mother of Jesus. In this passage, beloved, I hope to be an instrument in God's hand to bolster our confidence in the truthfulness of this precious doctrine. And I also hope uh, to show the vital importance and the relevance of the truth that our Lord Jesus Christ was indeed conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is not just an ivory tower doctrine. This is not just uh, you know, something that the theologians would find interest in. This is something that, that ought to impact our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. But as, we seek to, as I seek to lay the, the groundwork for what we are considering today, uh, and this is the first point in your sermon outline, if you're following along. Let's first of all consider, beloved, the historicity of our Lord's virginal conception. The historicity of our Lord's virginal conception. Friends, contrary to modernists, Bible skeptics, and scoffers who deny the supernatural virginal conception of our Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and who regard the virginal conception and birth of our Lord to be an unhistorical Christian myth, a myth invented by the early church. Contrary to that view, the Word of God makes it very clear, beloved, uh, in places such as our passage for this morning, that the virginal conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be understood as a real event of history a real occurrence that took place in genuine space-time history. And there's a number of, of reasons for that. Of course, we believe it because that is how it is, it is presented in the Word of God. That is the ultimate reason why we should believe in that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, because the Bible tells us so, and the Bible is God's Word and is trustworthy. But 
uh, as, as some points of evidence that bolster our faith in the word. What I'd first of all point out that the human author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which is basically like a two-volume work from the same author, the human author of both Luke and Acts shows himself throughout his writings to be a carefully researched historian, a carefully researched historian with an eye to, to, for detail. In fact, many uh, Bible commentators have, have been impressed by, by Luke's care and, and, and the details that he gives in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Now, who was the human author of this Gospel? We know who the divine author was. Uh, like all of Scripture, Luke and Acts uh, were, were breathed out by the Holy Spirit, theopneustos, uh, inspired by God. But as you know, God chose to use human authors uh, to record his holy, inerrant, infallible word. And so who is this human author? The Gospel of Luke, like the other Gospels, is technically anonymous. However, the human author of this Gospel is, has traditionally been regarded as Luke the physician, uh, who was a missionary traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. And there is no good reason, beloved, to reject this traditional understanding of the authorship of Luke's Gospel. There are many good reasons to accept uh, that the early churches and the, the church fathers' testimony uh, to Luke being the human author through whom the Holy Spirit uh, recorded Luke and Acts. And Luke was probably written, the Gospel of Luke was probably written sometime between 60 and 70 AD. My own personal uh, conviction is that it was probably written early on, so, so just a few decades after the events uh, surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Now, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 of Luke's Gospel, uh, these verses indicate that Luke consulted many reliable sources for his Gospel account, including eyewitnesses. So again, he was a carefully researched historian. Let me just read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, to uh, the, opening, uh, the opening to Luke's Gospel. Luke writes, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." When Luke wrote this, at that point, uh, many had uh, sought to write about uh, the life of Jesus, the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and he goes on to say, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. These are not the words of someone who is intent upon making up stories out of thin air and inventing myths, edifying myths. This is a, these are the words of someone who is committed to careful research. And notice also that it uh, points out, Luke points out, that he consulted uh, not just ministers or servants of the word, but he even consulted eyewitnesses. And the Holy Spirit, of course, was uh, overseeing and superintending uh, this process. And so, indeed, it's, uh, it's interesting, it's quite possible that Luke got his information on the events recorded in our passage for today from none less than Mary, the mother of our Lord herself. That is, uh, uh, that is a, a real possibility. But, you know, some skeptics and, and uh, biblical scholars of a more uh, theologically modernist bent will point out that the account of the birth of Jesus, the 
supernatural virginal conception of Jesus only occurs a couple of times in the scriptures. We read a lot in the New Testament about the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but we only read in a few places about the events surrounding his conception and birth. And so some have made the point that, well, look, it's, it's only recorded in a couple places, so it's not really that important. It's sort of an optional doctrine or what have you. And uh, the fact that, uh, that uh, it's only mentioned a few times in the New Testament means that it's not really a historical event. It was sort of invented later on. But friends, the fact that the New Testament only mentions the virginal conception and birth of Jesus a few times is not a valid objection against the historicity of our Lord's virginal conception and birth. Dr. I. Howard Marshall, in his commentary on Luke, puts it well. He says, and I quote him, the fact that the virgin birth is scarcely mentioned is not a strong objection to its historicity, for the story, if true, can have come only from the family of Jesus and was not one to be publicly proclaimed. But one of the biggest objections that is often raised uh, by skeptics and, and the, liberal scholars and so forth against the, uh, the virginal conception and birth of Jesus is the fact that uh, allegedly there are parallels uh, to the virgin birth in pagan stories. But friends, alleged parallels to the virgin birth in pagan stories do not prove the theory that the early church borrowed from pagan myths and therefore uh, they too are not valid objections against the historicity of our Lord's virginal conception. Yes, there are some superficial similarities at one level between some pagan stories and the, uh, the Christian story of the virginal conception and birth of Jesus. Uh, but when you look at the differences, the differences are striking. Again, to quote from Dr. Marshall, he says, Critics have adduced pagan stories of great heroes being the offspring of the gods and of mortal women being visited by gods who had intercourse with them. It has therefore been argued that the story of the virgin birth represents an admixture of Jewish and Hellenistic myth into the Christian faith in an attempt to express poetically or mythologically the divine origin of Jesus. But there is a world of difference, Dr. Marshall says, there is a world of difference between the atmosphere of the pagan stories and that of Luke 1 and 2. And a precise parallel to the Christian story can be gained only by some elaborate and highly speculative jigsaw work on the sources. Now, friends, I belabor this point because if you, you, know, if you, if you get on the internet and, and you look at what's being said by skeptics and atheists on social media, about Christianity and their critiques of Christianity. This is one of the favorites that they like to raise. Well, you know, the early Christians just borrowed uh, the idea of the virgin birth from the pagans, from pagan stories of virgin births. Now, I'll address this common objection to the virginal conception of Jesus a bit later in my sermon when we consider verse 35. But in the meantime, let me assure, assure you, brothers and sisters, that alleged parallels with pagan stories are spurious at best. And comparing the biblical account, the dignified biblical account of our Lord's virginal conception, comparing that to pagan mythology is like comparing apples to oranges. In fact, I would suggest it's more like comparing apples to Brussels sprouts. There's no, there's no comparison. And friends, we also need to remember that Christianity arose out of a staunchly monotheistic Jewish setting. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. The earliest Christians were Jews. And so certainly the earliest Christians would have no interest whatsoever in borrowing from pagan mythology 
in their telling of the Jesus story. So friends, uh, don't be intimidated by uh, the, the objections that are raised by skeptics. When you really look beneath the surface, uh, their objections uh, don't hold water under uh, careful examination. But with all of this in mind, let's dive in and consider next the significance of our Lord's virginal conception as recorded here in Luke's Gospel. Uh, we're going to go through this passage verse by verse. And the first thing that I would say regarding the significance of our Lord's virginal conception and why it's an important uh, Bible truth to embrace is that the virginal conception of our Lord Jesus Christ bears powerful witness to Jesus as the promised messianic king. Now let's dive in. It says in verse 26, in the sixth month. Now that should raise the question, the sixth month of what? In other words, the sixth month after Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother and Mary's relative, had conceived John the Baptist. Verse uh, 26 follows immediately after verses 24 and 25, which if you, I'll just read those verses. It says, after these days, his wife, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And then it says in verse 26, in the sixth month, meaning the sixth months, the sixth month of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is also confirmed if you skip down to uh, verse uh, 36, where Gabriel tells Mary, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, then uh, it says in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel. And let me just pause there. This, this would indicate to us that the angelic realm, again, is a real realm. There are real angels, just as there are fallen angels, which are known as demons. The Bible makes that very clear. The angels are not simply symbols or myths. They are real spirit creatures, and they have names. This particular angel is named Gabriel. This specific angel was sent as a messenger angel from God, and it says he was sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Jesus is from Nazareth. And he was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Um, Again, betrothal, as I pointed out in a recent sermon, betrothal was was, uh, much more legally binding than a modern-day engagement. It was actually... Uh, regarded as, a, as, uh, as an unconsummated marriage. You would get betrothed, and you would wait usually about a year, and then finally uh, the marriage would, uh, would be uh, consummated. But in order to break off a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. So it was a, a very serious uh, uh, commitment. It was a legal commitment. And it says that Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Now that's significant. Why does Luke point out that Joseph was of the house of David? Well, Joseph uh, was obviously not Jesus' biological father, but Joseph was Jesus' legal father, and therefore Jesus was legally regarded as a descendant of King David. And that's significant because the Old Testament prophesied, predicted that the Messiah would indeed be a descendant of King David. 
Also in verse 32, we, we read throughout this passage of the angel Gabriel speaking of the fact that this child that Mary would bear would be uh, uh, of David. Uh, verse 32 refers to the throne of his father David. And verse 33 refers to his reign. It says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's messianic language. He is the promised messianic king. He will reign over the house of of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end the messianic kingdom and so again all of this confirms the fact uh, and bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the promised messianic king so the conception the virginal conception of our Lord Jesus bears witness to him as the promised messianic king but that may raise the question what does the virginal conception have to do directly with the messiahship of Jesus well, friends, the answer to that is Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 indicates that the messianic son of David would be conceived by a virgin. That the virginal conception was a fulfillment of the messianic prophecy is also confirmed in Matthew's gospel. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 and look at verses 20 to 23. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, Matthew's account of the conception and birth of our Lord. In verse 20, we read about uh, when Joseph uh, learns that, that Mary, his betrothed, is pregnant. He makes the natural assumption that, well, she must have been unfaithful to me, and he is uh, considering divorcing her. It says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Yeshua, Joshua, the Lord is salvation. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And then notice verses 22 and 23. In verse 23, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7, verse 14. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, one reason why it's very important to embrace the biblical teaching on the virginal conception of Christ is because it bears witness to his messiahship. But also, it bears witness to the incarnate deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is brought out by uh, the reference to Jesus as the Son of God or the Son of the Most High. The angel Gabriel goes on, uh, it, it says, uh, Greetings, O favored one, verse 28. Greetings, O favored one. Sometimes that's mistakenly, I believe, translated uh, Mary full of grace. Uh, the word for favored one there in the Greek is a word that includes uh, charis, it includes grace. And it presents Mary as one who needed grace. She's the recipient of God's grace, not a dispenser of God's grace. But in any case, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she's confused. Why is, you know, she's frightened and confused. Why is this angel addressing me in this way? Verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God's 
grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor given to Mary. Mary, who was a sinner like all of us. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And then notice uh, verse uh, 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So in verse uh, 32, this child is going to be called the Son of the Most High. And this is confirmed going down to verse uh, 35, after as the angel is uh, seeking to answer Mary's question, how is this going to be? Since I'm a virgin, verse 35, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit, that's the third person of the Holy Trinity, will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, it's important to understand, beloved, that the terminology, the title Son of God, is used in the New Testament of Jesus in, in several different senses. Uh, the late Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff points out that the New Testament uses the title Son of God in a number of different senses, at least three different senses, uh, such as what he labels the official or messianic sense, the Trinitarian sense, and the nativistic sense, having to do with his nativity, his birth. As Professor Burkhoff explains in his summary of Christian doctrine, he says Christ is called the Son of God in more than one sense. He is so called because he is the second person of the Trinity and therefore himself God. He references Matthew eleven twenty seven, But also because he is the appointed Messiah and because he owes his birth to the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit. But friends, these different senses in which Jesus is called the Son of God that we find in the New Testament do not oppose each other. They don't contradict each other. They work together to give us a fuller picture of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the context of our passage for this morning clearly points, clearly seeks to emphasize that Jesus is Son of God because of his conception by the Holy Spirit, the, what Burkhoff calls the nativistic sense, and also because of his messiahship, the messianic son. However, again, the supernaturalness of this event of our Lord's conception by the Holy Spirit, also bears a powerful testimony to his divine sonship as the second person of the Trinity. Again, these different senses in which the New Testament speaks of Jesus as the Son of God imply and assume one another. Dear friends, again, remember that the Messiah, our Redeemer, had to be both true God and true man in order to be our Redeemer, our Savior. And Christ's virginal conception was the miraculous means of our Lord's incarnation. If he was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, then he is not really the God-man and thus not able to save us from our sin. Another reason why embracing this doctrine of the virginal uh, conception is important is, be, it was, is because it was the miraculous means by which our Lord's human nature was preserved from the stain of original sin. Now, this point is a little more um, of a, a good and necessary inference from the biblical data, but friends, think about it. If our Lord Jesus had been born in the ordinary, natural manner that the rest of us are, are then he would have inherited a sin nature from Adam, just as the rest of us do. 
And if Jesus had been born with the stain of original sin, he would not be qualified to serve as our sinless Savior, as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away our sin. In fact, Jesus would have been a sinner just like us, and thus himself would have needed to be saved. He himself would have needed a Savior. But the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, underscores the truth that he is the perfect, sinless Savior, the Savior of sinners like me and like you. But again, Mary is confused by the angel's message. She wants clarification. It says in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now the commentators like to point out the, uh, the contrast between uh, Mary's question and the question of Zechariah, the the father of John the Baptist. Remember when Zechariah questioned the message of the angel, uh, Zechariah ended up uh, being uh, disciplined and not being able to speak because he asked his question in unbelief. But Mary is not asking this question in unbelief, uh, but she seeks clarification. Uh, She has a submissive, faith-filled response to the angel. But she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answers in verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Being conceived by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself would be holy from his conception. Now, I'll get into that in a little more detail in just a minute uh, as we wrap things up. But dear ones, Let me again press upon your conscience that only a Savior who is not only true God and true man, but also himself without sin, is qualified to serve as our Savior. Jesus is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all those who by grace come to trust in him and him alone as their Lord and Savior. Dear listener, do you trust in Christ as your sinless Savior? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God says, and you will be saved. But the virginal conception is also important because it demonstrates the truth that nothing is impossible for God. This is another uh, significance, if you will, of our Lord's virginal conception. As the angel goes on to explain to Mary and answer her question, he says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, in other words, Elizabeth was naturally past childbearing age, but the Lord opened up her womb, enabled her to bear John the Baptist. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, was also con- has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And then verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Praise be to God. Nothing is impossible with our God, not even a virgin birth. You know, one of the things that I've found interesting, uh, I recall in, uh, in college, I was a religious studies major, and I recall reading uh, a Christian history book. I took a, a class in Christian history, and there was a particular history book written by, uh, you know, a, a, a scholar who was probably what we would call Bardian or Neo-Orthodox in his view of theology, for those of you who uh, are in the know about that. But in any case, what was interesting to me in this particular theology book, uh, as I recall, 
this particular author seemed to affirm the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. He had no problems with the idea that, that God raised Jesus from the dead, but he seemed to question the virgin birth. And I just kind of like do a double take and I think, wait a minute, if God has the power to raise a dead person from, to life again, certainly God has the power to cause a child to be conceived without the help of a man. Nothing is impossible for God. And that is a great comfort to you and to me, dear brother and sister in Christ, for whatever uh, challenges or obstacles we face in our, in our discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is greater than that challenge. Nothing is impossible with our God. And Mary's faith-filled response to this message is not to object or further question, but to say in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so we've considered the historicity of our Lord's virginal conception. We've considered some of the significance of this important Bible doctrine. But in closing, friends, let us consider the majestic mystery of our Lord's virginal conception. The majestic mystery of our Lord's virginal conception. And as we close off our time, let's focus especially on verse 35, the angel Gabriel's answer to Mary's question. He answers her by saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Again, in verse 34, we are told that Mary had responded to the angel Gabriel's prediction of the conception and birth of Jesus with the following question. She asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, some have said, well, wait a minute, she wouldn't ask that question. She's betrothed to Joseph. So, you know, wouldn't she have understood the angel's promise to mean that, you know, you will bear a child once you get married to Joseph? But uh, again, this question that Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? This question shows that Mary understood Gabriel to be predicting an immediate miraculous conception and not that she would conceive Jesus by the help of Joseph after they got married. And so Gabriel answers her with the majestic and mysterious words of verse 35. And I want us to just chew on these words for, for a few minutes. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. These are significant images and words that are being used here in this passage. But I want you to notice, Gabriel does not answer Mary in a way that explains the intricate biological mechanics of how the virginal conception of Jesus would take place. In fact, the mechanics of how the Holy Spirit is in coming upon and overshadowing Mary would produce the conception of our Lord Jesus Christ was and remains a divine mystery. A child might ask, well, how is it that the Holy Spirit uh, caused Jesus to be conceived with, without the help of a man? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit did it somehow, some way. We don't know. It's a divine mystery, but God knows, and we can trust God. But what Gabriel's words here highlight is the supernatural and miraculous nature of our Lord's conception 
in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he uses this term overshadow. It's a very significant term. See, this language of the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary harkens back to Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. Let me just uh, have you turn there very briefly. Exodus chapter 40, I'm going to read verses 34 to 38. This is the very uh, last section of the book of Exodus. As Exodus closes off, I'm going to begin reading in verse 34. This was after the Israelites had been rescued from their slavery in Egypt. Uh, They're uh, in the wilderness. They've received the Ten Commandments and they've received instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. And it says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And notice especially verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, uh, was uh, depicted the presence and reign of God in the midst of his people. It says in verse 35, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the, net, the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. As one commentator points out, the Greek word here for overshadow that is uh, used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 40, verse 35, it is used in that passage to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. He alludes back also to Genesis 1, verse 2, where the Spirit hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. According to, he goes on to say, accordingly, Gabriel's announcement implies that through Mary's pregnancy, God will be present among his people in a more wonderful way. Brothers and sisters, God is present with us in a more significant way than he was present with his people under the old covenant. Another commentator points out that the language of the spirits coming upon Mary and overshadowing her echoes the descriptive account of the Holy Spirit's work in the original creation of the world. It reveals that this baby will be a special creation with his father being God himself. Now, important clarification to make there, beloved. Jesus is a special creation only with respect to his human nature which he took upon himself in his incarnation. With respect to his divine nature as eternal son of God, he was uncreated. But with respect to his humanity, when he became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he took upon himself our humanity minus sin. Now, what do we learn from all of this? Well, it's interesting. uh, Not too long ago, I was on Facebook, probably spent a little more time on there than than I should at times. But uh, sometimes Facebook likes to suggest certain memes or, or pictures for you to look at or what have you. And there was a particular meme that popped up. It was from an atheist organization. It, it was basically mocking the virgin birth. It depicted God as, it was a cartoon depicting God as an old man who was on a psychologist's couch. And, uh, and uh, in, in language that I cannot repeat uh, to you, was talking about how He had intimate relations with Mary and produced Jesus out of wedlock. 
Uh, and that is, how, uh, that is how this atheist organization was trying to depict uh, what Christians believe about the birth of Jesus. However, friends, such crass, crude, sexualized mischaracterizations of our Lord's conception by the Holy Spirit find no support in the dignified language of this passage. Those who make such mischaracterizations are either ignorant of the biblical data or they simply are scoffers intent upon mocking our holy Christian faith. And therefore, their opinions about such matters don't deserve to be taken seriously since they themselves are unserious persons. You don't have the obligation to engage in gospel witness to someone who is clearly not serious about the gospel. You can pray for them, love our enemies, seek, seek their good, but Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be intimidated by the mocking and raging of such blasphemers. But what do we learn in the angel's answer here? Well, think about it, beloved. God's glory presence, which dwelt in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, anticipated and typified our Lord's incarnation. In the incarnation, the eternal living word became flesh and dwelt among us. God was with his people in old covenant times in a glory cloud that dwelt in a portable tent and later on in a stone temple. But now with the coming of Christ, our incarnate Lord, God is with us in the flesh and blood person of the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary made it all possible. Let us rejoice, brothers and sisters, for in his grace, God is indeed with us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, our Emmanuel, the one who is God with us. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth that he was indeed supernaturally, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Help us, Lord, to see the relevance and the importance and the significance of this important doctrine, and not just to hold it as a lifeless doctrine, but a doctrine that fills us with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. For it means that you, O oh God, in the person of Christ, have come to dwell in our midst. We thank you that you continue to dwell with us by your Spirit, sent from you, O oh Father, and your Son, the Lord Jesus. Be with us now, Lord, and help us to take these truths to heart. We ask in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we close our time of worship, let's rise and we'll sing hymn 268 of the Father's Love Begotten, 268.